WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Well, anybody that knows me knows I love history, especially baseball history, and it's always a pleasure to talk with this young lady, who I like to call the First Lady of the Red Sox, and she is the curator of the ball club, Miss Sarah Coffin. And Sarah, it's nice to have you back again. It's nice to be back, Ken. It's nice to chat with you again. All right. You had a very good year last year. And you and I and John Hamilton, whom I want you to talk about, did something that I think is rather unique and that our listeners should know about. So I'll, I know it's hard to believe, but I'll keep quiet and let you talk about it. Uh, do you mean John Young? And myself, yes, John okay. Young. Did I say Hamilton? I yeah, I meant John Young. <laughs> All good. Um, oh well. So I think you are referring to uh, what we call the Sand uh, Network, which is the Sensory Ambulatory and Neurodiversity um, Group at Fenway Park. Um, and we are working to make the ballpark a more inclusive place for all, um, particularly those with disabilities, uh, and making the game more accessible. Uh, for folks of all ages, all um, and all different types of abilities. Yep. But we we had a rather interesting conference call one day. Yeah, we did. That's we had a I'm... panel of um, major league uh, major league baseball alumni um, who played with disabilities. Um, so we talked to uh, Jim Eisenreich. Uh, who famously played for the Kansas City Royals, but, um, and I think the Minnesota Twins as well. Um, forgive and me. And I think I the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Phillies too. Yep. Um, and Jim played uh, with Tourette's and he didn't know at the beginning of his career that he had Tourette's syndrome. And um, he found out while he was playing um, and discovered how to work within that um, during his playing gaze um, and has since become, you know, a huge advocate um, for that community as well. Um, and we spoke with Curtis Pride, who uh, was born profoundly deaf um, and was a major league player for us, uh, the New York Yankees um, and a, a various other organizations. Um, and now is the baseball head of the baseball um baseball program at uh, Gall Gallaudet University, Gallaudet University in Washington, DC. Um, so he works with athletes who um, also are, are deaf and or have hearing impairments. Um, so it's, uh, it's, I believe it's the only university um, in the world that uh, teaches all of its classes in ASL and English. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, now, besides that, you are the Red Sox curator of the Red Sox Museum. Tell us a little about that. And I also know that you went on a grand tour, so to speak, to look at other museums in other ballparks. So A, what do we have? And B, what did you find in other ballparks that you would either add or, or, or not add to our museum and what yes. they had? Yeah, so as many, um, you know, as many people know, Fenway is the oldest major league ballpark uh, in continuous operation. Uh, we were built in 1912, uh, Wrigley Field being the second oldest, uh, built in 1914. Um, and we are, you know, over 110 years old at this point. So we have a lot of uniqueness to the ballpark ourselves and have an incredible history, right? Those two things are not... Um, exclusive to one another. They, they go hand in hand. So as part of our 100th anniversary celebration, uh, we started something that we call the Fenway Park Living Museum. Um, and the idea is that Fenway is a living, breathing entity that has incredible historic value. Um, so the idea was instead of building one central museum space, what we were gonna do was build, was build displays all throughout the ballpark. Um, and this comes with some, some pros in the sense that basically every gate, every, you know, every different section of Fenway has different pieces of history. Um, so whether it's, we have a hundred bronze 
plaques in and around the ballpark that point out different historical, historically, historically significant events. I say that five times fast. Um, and we have 22 displays within the ballpark um, that look at different specific events, time periods, championship seasons, because um, we have had a few of those as well. Uh, or just looking at different players and, and their unique um, abilities that they brought to the game and, and to Fenway Park. Uh, and the idea with this is that anywhere someone goes within the ballpark, they should encounter some piece of history and potentially learn something, right? When we go to Fenway Park, we don't think about it like we're going to a museum. You have a very different mindset when you walk into the Museum of Fine Arts than when you walk into Fenway Park. And most people walking into Fenway Park want, you know, a hot dog, uh, you know, some kind of beverage and to watch a baseball game. Right. That's the that's the universal goal. But maybe those people, you know, will come across a plaque or come across a display, learn something they didn't learn before. Um, perhaps they're there with a loved one or a friend and they can start having conversations about different time periods, different events, you know, different things that they may have witnessed. So if it's a grandparent and a grandchild talking about you know, the 1967 Impossible Dream Team, obviously the grandchild was not around uh, for that, for those, but maybe the grand, maybe the grandparent was. Um, so you start having these conversations, you start talking about how universal baseball is, and especially a place like Boston, especially a city like this that loves baseball the way we do. Um, it's just an incredible privilege to work with this history and to also find new and unique ways to display the history. Um, in the ballpark. All right. I know one of the places you went was Cleveland. I've always liked Cleveland. Uh, I remember some of their great ball players like Chico Carrascal, Rocky Dominico Calavito. I love to say that name. Uh, <laughs> Jim Mudcat Grant, Jim Perry. Um, tell me about your trip there and what you found in their museum that you thought you could do or maybe not do with with Fenway Park. So the uh, the trip you're referring to, I did a um, trip of the Midwest, and basically what I was looking to do was to see some other ballparks and ballpark museums or ballpark displays that I hadn't encountered um, yet. So I am an East Coast person. I grew up in this area. Um, I have been to. You know, before this summer, I've been to Yankee, the new Yankee Stadium several times. I've been to City Field several times. Um, my job before I started with the Red Sox was up in Cooperstown at the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, so I pretty much had a number of the East Coast <laughs> baseball institutions covered well. Um, and so I got the opportunity to travel through the Midwest a little bit and see some of their institutions. Um, so I started actually in uh, Minneapolis um, and went and visited Target Field and the Minnesota Twins. Um, with their setup is very similar to ours. They have displays all in and throughout the ballpark instead of having one centralized uh, museum space. Uh, then I went from Minneapolis to Kansas City um, and visited the Negro Leagues Museum. Um, as well as the Kansas City Royals Museum. Uh, Kansas City has multiple entities. Um, then drove from Kansas City to St. Louis and visited the new Cardinals Museum, which I believe opened in 2015. Um, so the last time I've been in St. Louis was 2013 for the World Series. Um, so that ballpark museum was new. Um, and then drove from St. Louis to Cincinnati. Um, and the Cincinnati uh, Reds had built a new museum as part of Great American Ballpark, uh, which opened in the early 2000s. Um, so I was looking at the way these different teams displayed their history. Um, you know, the best part, copy, you know, copying someone is the greatest form of flattery, right? Um, right. And so I was <laughs> not only looking at what they were doing, looking at how, how these teams did things differently, how they integrated displays, maybe how they use technology in their displays, and then also talking to their curators or team historians or whoever they had um, to try to figure out, you know, what's what was their what's the special sauce of the Cincinnati Reds Museum? What's the you know what's the special sauce of, you know, the St. Louis Cardinals or or the Negro Leagues Museum or the Kansas you know the Kansas City Royals Museum? 
um, to just kind of get a feel for what other places have done. Um, and, you know, a lot of newer stadiums, and I say newer stadiums, you know, obviously being the oldest. Uh, so anything built after 1912, in my mind, is a newer stadium. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the most recent stadiums, I should say, um, you know, have built museum structures specifically. Uh, so they've had museums as part of their design, as part of their plan. Um, so, you know, the new Yankee Stadium, you know, they put a museum in that space, the new city field for the New York Mets, they put a museum in that space. Um, so a lot of places when they build brand new stadiums will put, will put, you know, a, a, they'll say, okay, the history goes here and they find a, you know, they find a room or a space and, you know, that's that. Um, and then there are other cities uh, like the Atlanta Braves that have built new stadiums, but done something similar to what the Red Sox do, which is put displays all throughout the ballpark again. So there's pros and cons to both sets up setups, and I wanted to just kind of explore all of them. Um, I didn't get a chance to make it to Cleveland this time. I actually lived very close to Cleveland um, when I was in college, and so I'd been to what I still refer to as Jacob Field, Jacob's Field, but I know it's Progressive Field now, um, several times. Um, but I'm hoping that I can get up there, get up there as well soon. Um, and they have, Cleveland is really interesting because they have kind of a mix of two things. Um, they have a uh, monument park, very similar to what the Yankees do with their monument park. Um, with, and then they also have displays in and throughout the ballpark uh, like we do. So Cleveland almost is kind of like a blend of New York and Boston. Um, although they like to be their own independent thing. So I'm not comparing Cleveland to, to anybody else. Um, so everybody does it differently and everybody has different structures, different ways that they approach it. Um, and I really think there's an incredible value into having conversations across the board. Um, that being said, a large group of curators for all of the major league teams, we all meet together regularly. We all have conversations about, oh, how, how have you done this? How have you worked with this because there really is nothing quite like baseball. Um, and so we really do kind of feed off of each other um, because it's really unique. It's incredibly unique to do, um, as I've referred to it in the past, historical things or museum things in a ballpark, uh, which is very distinctly not a museum space. Now, uh, I know my baseball history a little bit, and I know that there are people that live in New York that still remember the Brooklyn Dodgers and Ebbets Field. Mm -hmm. Have the New York Mets done anything to preserve that history at City Field? Um, so the Mets, I don't believe have as have as much of, you know, a connection, um, you know, especially when a franchise is still in existence. So I think the the most kind of, uh, you know, Brooklyn Dodgers you'll see is actually in Los Angeles right with the Los Angeles Dodgers um right. and so you know I think the Mets themselves uh a lot of teams do a really good job of acknowledging the other teams that had been there so for instance the Kansas City Royals Museum has a little section about the Kansas City Athletics so even though the Kansas City Athletics as we as we know are uh, the Oakland Athletics at this point, so the franchise still exists, they do a really good job of pointing out, you know, some of their history when they were when they were in Kansas City. Or, um, for example, the St. Louis Cardinals do a really good job of acknowledging the St. Louis Browns, which we all know became the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, so it's technically the same franchise, but obviously had a very different identity when they were in um, St. Louis. So, you know, and by that stretch, we also, um, you know, we as, as Red Sox fans would acknowledge the Braves um, being the other uh, baseball team that was here uh, until the early 1950s. Uh, but because the Braves have such a rich history in Atlanta as well, uh, you know, we do talk a little bit about some of the overlaps between the Braves and the Red Sox, uh, but we don't go into any great depth about it because it's, it's the Braves history, not ours. All right. I know one of the other things, and this is to me really fascinating. You wrote or are still writing uh, something on the history of baseball in the 40s and 50s. 
So when you were doing this, what surprised you that you didn't know before you started it? Yeah, so um, what you're referring to, one of the displays that we have in the ballpark um, is, is what we, what I essentially refer to as, as Fenway in the 40s. And <laughs> this idea came out of the fact that we used to have a display called Fenway in the 30s. And I, I figured, you know, it's 10 years after the Fenway in the 30s display went in, it's time to update it to Fenway in the 40s. Um, and the reason that we originally had Fenway in the 30s was because Fenway went, underwent a massive renovation between 1933 and 1934. Um, and any, any baseball historians out there will remember this is also the same time that Tom Yockey bought the team. And so he had, an opportunity, had his first opportunity to kind of have a mark on the stadium. Um, and he did a couple of things that were incredibly key to the Fenway Park you see now. The biggest being he gave Fenway the footprint it has now. So Fenway had some um, outside fences and some and some borders uh, to the field themselves, but they weren't permanent in the way we see now. So you had a um, a fence where the Green Monster is now, but it wasn't. It was a wooden fence, and it wasn't as you know kind of concrete as literally we see we see today. Um, and so Fenway is incredibly unique because we take up one square city block. So we have incredibly unique dimensions. Um, these are dimensions that you can't build again in Major League Baseball. If we tried to pick up Fenway and move it someplace else, I don't think Major League Baseball would allow us to build the same dimensions again. Um, but it's part of what makes Fenway so unique. So in researching going into the 40s, I was looking at, okay, what were the, what were the major developments during this decade? What what made baseball change greatly um, in Boston during this time? And a couple of things really jumped out. Obviously, um, the Braves, the Boston Braves were still in Boston. Um, so we were still a two city team. We had a National League team and an American League team. Um, and the Braves were playing over at Braves Field, which is now part of the Boston University campus. Um, and the historic Bracefield ticket booths actually still exist. They're part of the BU Police Department, um, which you know you can still see kind of how the old turnstiles and and things looked. Um, so that was a a very unique experience to a fan in the '40s. Was that you know we'd always we'd always had two teams. The Braves were actually here before us. We were the newer of the two, um, and so some people were Braves fans, some people were Red Sox fans, some people went to both. Um, and so one of the really unique things that happened in the 40s was the, the night baseball becoming a thing in Boston. And so prior to 1946, there were no night baseball games in Boston because there were no lights at either ballpark, Braves Field or Fenway Park. Baseball was exclusively a day game. In 1946, the Braves put in light towers in order to play night baseball, but Fenway Park and the Red Sox had not yet done that. And in this year, they discovered they were losing fans to Braves Field and to watch the Braves because it was much more accessible to people who worked during the day. Day games were not accessible to people who had jobs that kept them working during the day. Um, and Instead, they would go to night baseball games, which were much more, you know, available to them. Um, and there were a number of Red Sox fans who wrote to the team and said, hey, I'd come to Fenway Park, but you need to put, you know, you need to get night games. This is something you need to do. So although Tom Yaki very strongly felt that baseball was a day game, he did put light towers in in, 19, in 1947. Um, so that was one of the biggest changes that you saw was that now baseball could be played during the day and at night. Um, so all of a sudden, baseball was accessible to new demographics, new groups of people um, that perhaps it hadn't been accessible to before. Uh, also in the 40s, you obviously have World War II, um, which changed, you know, not only baseball, it changed the nation. It changed, it changed us as a country. It changed us internationally. It changed the way people looked at the world um, and was an incredibly you know, difficult, difficult time um, in our history. And during that time period, you had a lot of players 
who were either volunteering to go into the military or were, you know, drafted into the military. Um, and it didn't matter if you were a baseball player or not a baseball player. Um, there were people that were doing that were doing both. And that's not something you see today. You know, we are not in a period of time like World War II, um, where, you know, the military, you know, needs to be that big um, to taking civilians into military, into military work. Um, but that was something that really shaped the game. So while all of these stars like Ted Williams or Johnny Pesky or Bobby Doerr, or Dom DiMaggio um, were filling military service, you had young, younger guys, essentially, you know, college students that were playing professional, that were playing professional baseball because the game went on. Um, so you had this incredible mix of of players during that time and people who may not have played the game uh, during that time otherwise. The last topic that we addressed um, in this exhibit is the topic of integration. Um, so as we know, in 1947, uh, Jackie, Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball. Um, and I wanted to look into who would have been the first black players to play at Fenway Park. Um, and the first black players to play at Fenway Park, um, a lot of people, you know, baseball fans may guess Larry Doby, um, because Larry Doby was the first black player in the American League and played for the Cleveland Indians, now Cleveland Guardians. Um, but the first black players at Fenway Park were actually, uh, or excuse me, the first black player at Fen to play at Fenway Park was actually a gentleman named Willard Brown, uh, who played for the St. Louis Browns. Um, and he also, one of his teammates was a gentleman named Hank Thompson, uh, or Hank Thomas, excuse me. And he, um, they were the first black players to play at Fenway when the Browns came to Fenway before the Indians came to Fenway that season. Um, and when the Indians actually came to Fenway, Larry Doby was actually on the bench. Um, so you had the first black players uh, came to Fenway as part of the St. Louis Browns. Um, and uh, Willard actually only played for the Browns for a year um, and ended up going back to the Negro Leagues and having an incredible success, successful end to his career uh, in the Negro Leagues instead of the major leagues. I've read and heard that integration should have happened sooner than it did. And the case that has been pointed out in books is with Roy Campanella and the fact that the pirates indicated at one point that they were very interested in signing him. And then for whatever reason, backed off. I don't know whether you had come across any of that or not. Well, and by, you know, by the way, there was a, a Hank Thompson. Yes, Hank Thompson, thank well. you. Yes, yep, Hank Thompson, not Hank Thomas, uh, forgive me. Um, I actually, I was, last night I went to the tradition at the sports museum, their sports museum's big signature event that they do um, once a year. And so I was out a little past my, my usual bedtime. Um, so forgive me for, <laughs> forgive me for that. All right. Um, when it comes to, when it comes to integration and looking at that time period, there is a lot of, there are a lot of questions about what happened, who said what, kind of how things how things evolved and um you know the primary as a as a historian minded person um you know the primary sources we have of that time are usually box scores and newspaper articles and um things that were written during that time would i have loved to have been a fly on the wall at some of the executive meetings um during that time period as as, as people were discussing integration and and whether or not to integrate teams and, and you know, kind of how all of that happened. Um, I would love to, I would love to know more about that. Um, but there's a lot of different pieces and parts that are just really hard to pin down. It's really hard to know what was going on behind closed doors, what those kinds of conversations um, that were happening and, you know, why particular decisions were made. Although, you know, it's very clear that a number of decisions were made purely from from a standpoint of, well, this is the way we've always done it. And, you know, we're not going to integrate because, you know, we, we don't need to or, you know, we don't or we don't have to. 
Um, whereas we know now there, you know, they, uh, it was incredible crops of talent, um, you know, for generations before the 1940s um, that were playing uh, black baseball. Uh, and so obviously major league baseball benefited greatly um, when they did, uh, when they did integrate and, and start to kind of, and start to make the game more inclusive of, of all of these different talents. Being a baseball fan as you are, when did you first learn about integration and the problems that occurred during the process? You know, it's interesting. I grew up in, you know, in the greater Boston area. And one of the things that always kind of stood out to me as, as a kid was the idea of, well, you know, racism is an issue in the South. Racism is an issue in the North. And I, I, I kind of chuckle because obviously we know now that, you know, that that's a, a not only a gross exaggeration, but is, you know, is, is completely false. Um, so, you know, as a kid in the 80s, you know, you're kind of learning, you're kind of learning some of these things and you're thinking, OK, well, you know, this is this and this is that. And, you know, this is this is black and this is white and this is, you know, kind of you know, there's no gray, there's no kind of in between. Um, and so I think the beauty of baseball and baseball history is that you can learn so much about a nation's history uh, and a country's history from learning the game, right? So um, obviously guys like Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby and Willard Brown and, and Hank Thompson, you know, had an incredible impact on the game themselves because, you know, their integration into the game becomes a, a part of history. It's popular culture, it's history, it's, you know, foundational to the game, it's pioneering. It, there's just so many different pieces that you say, gosh, you know, look at, look at that time period and look at how that helped the nation to evolve, right? It, you start to have people's thoughts and minds and hearts change when they, when they realize what, you know, what the, what the difference is. When I was growing up, I was a combination Red Sox and Yankees fan. And it kind of disturbed me when I looked at history that the Yankees waited until 1955 before they integrated and the Red Sox waited until 1959. Yeah, no. And um, the first the first black player to play for uh, the New York Yankees was actually Elson Howard, yep. um, who became very who became a very famous Boston Red Sox uh, during the, uh, you know, the second half of the 1967 67 season. Um, looking at that entire time period, right, looking between 1947 and 1959, you know, that's 12 years. That's a significant, that's a significant time period and, and a significant amount of change. And when you start to look at, you know, obviously the Brooklyn Dodgers, or excuse me, um, the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, and moving all, you know, moving down the list of when different teams integrated and, and who those players were and, and, and what were the circumstances, you know, of those, you start to have a whole, a, you know, a real piece of, each of those cities, each of those communities, each of those time periods. Um, and it is, it's really hard to think, you know, why did it take 12 years? Why was that, why was that such a, you know, such a significant time period? Um, and obviously that's when you start to look at all of the different factors that went into play in each of those places. Um, and, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's troublesome to think that, that it took as long, that it took as long as it did. Yeah, and, and uh, I had even heard or read that one of the people that did try out at Fenway Park before eventually being signed by the Giants was uh, an outfielder named Willie Mays. We could have had Willie Mays. You know, and again, you go back to there are all kinds of instances in, in different cities along this, this time period, right? It's what makes Branch Rickey you know, such an incredible figure in our history as well. Um, along with Jackie Robinson, you can't talk about Jackie Robinson without talking about Branch Rickey because Branch Rickey said, okay, 
you know, here's the, here's the status quo, here's where we've been. And, and this is what we're going to, this is what we're going to change. Right. Um, so, you know, again, to be a fly on the wall for some of these conversations and to think why some of these things, you know, happened or didn't happen and, and, you know, kind of what the pieces behind it were, which obviously racism goes, you know, goes a long way and plays a, and plays a, you know, a massive role um, within that as well. You know, it, there's, there's so many possibilities, right? So if you flip, if you flip the script and, you know, the, you know, you look at, you know, kind of a, but, you know, a, what's the word I'm looking for, a fantasy world, and you reorder that list and you say, okay, instead of integrating in the, in the 40s, let's, you know, what would have happened if we had integrated in the 30s? You know, who would have been the players we would have seen if we'd done, if we'd done this earlier, um, you know, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, it's really difficult um, to look at some of these things and say, what if, um, but it is actually, it's still very important to do so as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a great game to play, though. What if, you know, um, when they used to give baseball attendance, they would say, you know, the paid attendance is such and such. And then they would add, and with servicemen admitted free, it's such and such. They don't do that anymore. And the opportunity is there to be able to do it with all that has occurred in our country in the last several years do you know why is there any reason why they don't do that anymore yeah you and i were talking about this off air i think i think the difference really um is is two things is context and then also you know what they're announcing right so the the red sox um one of the the you know the greatest pieces and greatest pillars of our foundation, the Red Sox Foundation and, and the organization is obviously committed to giving back to the military um, and to those who have served our country so honorably. Um, so between the, um, you know, the home base program and the run to home base program or our hats off the heroes program, um, there's so much that's that, you know, we, we do to honor to honor these communities and, and um, you know, these military professionals. So I think it really comes down to just not announcing it as much anymore. Um, and also, you know, looking at the context, right? So if you're saying in the 1940s or 50s, when you know, a, gr a much greater percentage of the American population was veterans uh, after World War II. Um, you had a much greater percentage of, of people within the ballpark who may have uh, who may have served as well. I um, heard an interview once with a gentleman that wrote a book on the history of the New York Yankees, and uh, John Sterling, their broadcaster, said to him what surprised you when you wrote the book? And he said, when I examined the baseball all-star games, most of the ballplayers played the whole game. They weren't in it for an inning or two innings. Um, what, what stuck with you or surprised you that you didn't think about before you'd got involved in this project, if anything? Oh, oh gosh. Um... <laughs> You know, I think my my own baseball evolution um, from being a Red Sox fan who grew up in this area and, you know, my the real peak of my interest in baseball started when right when I was around, you know, 10, 11 years old. And so I'm going to date myself, but 10, 11 years old was 1998, 1999. So um, I started to really become more interested in the game during a time period when, you know, we're getting Pedro <laughs> uh, when Nomar, you know, when Nomar was unbelievably incredible and won two back-to-back -back, um, batting champions championships. When you have, excuse me, the all-star game um, at Fenway Park and, you know, my little kid brain didn't understand that the all-star game doesn't come around that often. Um, yeah. So, you know, watching it on TV, I was like, oh, of course, you know, of course it's at Fenway Park. Fenway Park is the center of the universe. So, you know, when I, I moved to I moved to um, Worcester, Ohio, um, and attended the College of Worcester, which is about 45 minutes southwest of Cleveland. Um, and that was the first time I'd lived outside of New England um, and got to know, obviously, a lot of Cleveland sports history. Um, and you know, there were a lot of similarities. A pre 2004, you know, Fenway felt very similar to 
a, you know, uh, to how the uh, Cleveland baseball fans must feel now as well, having not won a World Series since 1948, you know, so you have almost an entire generation that hasn't seen um, a World Series uh, championship. So, you know, that was my first kind of foray into, okay, there are other cities, there are other, there are other ball clubs. I think I know, you know, I always knew it at heart. Right. Um, But then when I, when I um, took an internship up at the baseball hall of fame and worked up there the summer after I graduated from college, that was when all of a sudden all 30 teams and, you know, plus, right. So 30 teams plus the Montreal Expos, plus, you know, some of these franchises that no longer exist, and, you know, the Negro Leagues and the All-American Girls Baseball League. And, and you know, you just started, like, my eyes just widened. You know, I probably, I don't think I blinked that entire summer because there was just so much to take in. And all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, so, so Boston baseball history is a puzzle piece in a much bigger story. And this story goes from, you know, stickball at the turn of the century and, you know, kids playing, you know, pickup baseball to, you know, little leagues and college leagues and, you know, the way that the game has evolved. And all of a sudden, it's not just professional baseball, it's minor league baseball, it's, you know, all of these facets all together. And so, oh, gosh, this is a huge, this is a huge story and a huge kind of weaving into Right. So sometimes, you know, we as Boston sports fans can be very caught up in just Boston sports and and with good reason. Right. Like we've had an incredible run um, of of success since 2001. Um, And so but it's it's really important to me and my work to kind of step back and look at the bigger fabric and look at the bigger picture. Um, and I think by taking on the and working with this display in the 1940s, it really gave me um, an opportunity to look at a much wider picture of um, what baseball meant at that time and how baseball was influencing popular culture, influencing military history, influencing, um, you know, our political history, influencing our race, his- uh, you know, race relations and race history and and, you know, how it kind of all blends all blends together you can't have one thing without any without anything else um and i love opportunities to look at the red sox within this greater period of time um and within this greater context because it gives us an opportunity to talk about so much more than just you know hits and and you know games won and uh, you know, particular players during a particular time period, it gives us a chance to have conversations that are, you know, things that happened 80 years ago, but are still incredibly relevant to today. Using the word irony, we talked about Cleveland in the 1948 World Series. And ironically, they were beaten by the Boston Braves. Yep. And we very, we almost, we were almost in that World Series ourselves. Um, yeah, Denny so, Galehouse decided to change that. <laughs> so um, for, for those who may not read as much baseball history as Ken and I do, um, we came down to a one to a one game playoff um, because we had tied uh, for the American League championship crown um, that would have sent us to the to the World Series. Um, and so we had to, or excuse me, Cleveland had tied and we needed to wait, um, for the end of that, of them playing, uh, as well. So that was the closest that we had come to, uh, what would have been an all Boston world series. And the next time that we came even close to it was 2021, um, where if we had beaten the, uh, Houston Astros, we would have gone to the 2021 World Series against the Atlanta Braves, which obviously, in my mind, they're still the Boston Braves. <laughs> yeah, it's it's now go back going back to to the World War II time period. How was attendance at the ballpark at that time, um, and how were ticket prices? I mean, were people just deciding to wait until the war was over and ballplayers came back, or I, I can't imagine the ballpark being packed, knowing what I've heard about attendance in the early 60s. Well, I think 
one of the things that was a huge part of this time period in terms of attendance at Fenway Park, so we're not talking about the Braves as well, we're talking about people who came to Fenway in the 1940s, was the fact that there were two teams, right? You had you had another baseball team um, on the other side of Com Ave that was, um, you know, that was, that was playing baseball. Um, so that had a huge, had a huge impact on attendance, you know, outside of, outside of World War II. Um, and then, yeah, during World War II, right, people had very different goals, right? People had different, different mindsets. It's, you know, watching baseball when, you know, your loved one is overseas or, you know, you're missing people in your life and, and, and you're kind of watching, you know, you're reading and, and, and hearing about things that are going on, you know, um, in the war, you know, it changes, it changes the way, the way we look at, you know, popular entertainment, which at the end of the day, baseball is popular entertainment. Um, but in the same breath, I think it was incredibly important to keep playing baseball and to give people an outlet from some of these incredibly, you know, devastating things that were happening um, in our in our country and in our history. And that's really, you know, one of the biggest impetuses for the creation of the All-American Girls Baseball League was, you know, let's give let's, you know, let's have, you know, girls play, women play, um, because there aren't, you know, there aren't as many men around. Um, so that there is entertainment, so that we are still playing baseball. So all of a sudden this this kind of tragic situation became this incredible opportunity for, you know, a basically a generation of women baseball players. Um, so I think the numbers are, it's important to look at, to look at things in a whole context. Um, and, you know, I could go back and look at specific attendance numbers in 1942 versus 1943, you know, versus 1944. Um, but I think the, the bigger thing that you're noticing is that, you know, people's attitudes were shifting. So people, people were using baseball as an escape or people were using baseball as, you know, um, a way to get away from, from what they were, from what they were experiencing or people weren't going to games. Um, but, you know, there's kind of a whole, there's so many different factors into that. Um, but it's also what made the 1946 Red Sox so important to our history and to the history of the city. Because, you know, Ted Williams, Tom DiMaggio, Johnny Pesky, Bobby Doerr, all these guys that I was talking about before, um, you know, came back and then, you know, went to the World Series for the first time in, I can't do math, 20, you know. 1918. Yeah, well, 19, you know, they'd gone to the World Series for yeah. the first time since 1918. And so, you know, that was a huge thing and a huge morale booster right right after all of these you know other significant um you know events had happened right you know you look at obviously um yesterday was december 7th you look at the fact that that was only a two-year difference between the between those two you know events um you know to have the end of you know the end of one thing or you know the bombing of pearl harbor and then you know only a few years later you're you know out you know how much had the country changed Right. And you're saying, OK, 1946 was was this coming together of of players again after having experienced, you know, military, you know, in, intense military service. Yep. And and I can also remember um, going way back, um, reading a book by Robert Creamer about the 1941 season. And so many things happened that year, like. Uh, Ted Williams, obviously, hitting 400, um, the dropped ball in the World Series by Mickey Owen uh, with the Dodgers against the Yankees, which enabled the Yankees to win. Uh, Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak. I don't think we're ever going to find seasons like that again. Well, and I think, um, you know, I hate to relate different different historical time periods because I feel like, you know, the early 2000s is significantly different from the 1960s or, you know, the 1940s are, are significantly different. But, you know, I think every generation has these moments 
in their history where they say, okay, there was things that were before this date and there were things that are after this date. So my generation, it's very much 9-11, right? So there are, there was the world as right. we knew it before 9-11 and there's the world that we knew it after 9-11. And I think for an entire generation of baseball fans in the 40s, there was, you know, before World War II and after World War II. Um, and so the fact that the 1941 season would never happen again, well, that makes, you know, that makes a lot of sense because everything had to change, you know? So, you know, the war changed everything and, and baseball, right? Of course, baseball. So you can't look at a 1941 time period and, you know, compare it to 1951. And, you know, it's just so difficult to kind of look at these two time periods because you say, well, what was happening in between and, and, you know, who were the players and, and how did all these things go down? You know, everybody always talks about, oh, if Ted Williams hadn't observed in, you know, World War II and Korea, think of what his numbers could have been, right? We're going back to our, you know, what if, yep. what if. I world. always do that. Yeah. And it's, it's a very common thing in baseball history, but I do try to point out, um, you know, a lot that it's like, yeah, you can play, you can play a what if game with baseball history a lot. But um, the fact is, is that things happened and things happened in a way. And, and um, you know, that's the story, that's the story, that's the story that we have. I mean, like, for example, again, a what if everybody knows the injuries that Mickey Mantle had with osteomyelitis and all the problems he had with his knees. And in a book that Jane Levy wrote, uh, if she pointed out, if medical care were today, or back then, if medical care and medical knowledge and advancements had been what they are today, he could have had an entirely different career. And he has more home runs, even with those problems, than Ted Williams did. Well, I mean, there's so many examples of this, right? You know, we could we could be here for hours talking the what if game. I think the biggest one that comes to mind on the Boston side is Harry Aganis. Right. Uh, if yes, Harry yes. Guinness had been born at a different time and and had his medical, you know, as we know, um, Harry Guinness died very suddenly um, while he was a member of the Boston Red Sox. Um, and, you know, there's still some questions of of what exactly, you know, um, he had a mysterious illness that, um, you know, basically was the was the was the end of his life. You know, if we had you know, if he had gone to the hospital sooner, if it was different medical care, if it was, you know, you could play all of those games. Um, and, you know, then you have someone who was an incredible athlete, you know, what would have Harry Gannis's the rest of his career looked like? You can do it with Tony Canigliero, you know, if Tony, uh. if Tony doesn't get hit by the ball, what is Tony's, what does Tony's stuff look like? And, you know, but the, but the fact of the matter is, is that those, those things did happen. And that is, you know, that's the, that's the history, but you know, it is, it is, it is, can be very interesting to start going down those roads and saying, okay, you know, if we change these particular, if we change these particular scenarios, you know, how does, how does the world, how does the world change? My personal favorite is, you know, obviously, um, well, not obviously, but one of my personal favorites to go back to is, you know, some of the, you know, some of the World Series game sevens, you know, 46, 67, yep. 75, yep. you yep. know, 86. Um, you know, what if the Red Sox had won, had won those games? You know, would, would we have been the, would the 2004 Red Sox still have existed if the curse had been broken decades before? When I talked to Rico Petroselli, thanks to you, <laughs> one of the interesting questions I asked him was, do you think that the 75 Red Sox could have beaten the 67 Cardinals in a, in a World Series? And he okay. said, yes. That's a really interesting one because, I mean, you got Bob Gibson and, um, you know, the 67 Cardinals are, are unbelievable and obviously won yep. the World Series. And, you know, um, gosh, you know, but when you start to when you start to do those things, that's when you say, OK, <laughs> I'm going to build a team. And Babe Ruth is, you know, Babe Ruth is our designated hitter. And, yeah. you know, Pedro Martinez is your, is your pitcher. And, you know, Bobby Doerr is your second, you know, or, you know, Bobby Doerr. Second Dorr baseman, and, yeah. Yeah, second baseman. And then you've yep. got, you know, let's put Jim Rice in the outfield and Carl Yastrzemski and Ted Williams. You know, it's like, <laughs> we yeah. can start playing those <laughs> games. 
and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you know, it's like you've taken a little from column A, a little from column B. Um, but what makes all of these players, and and one of the things that I look at my job a lot and say, is what makes all of these players so unique are the time periods that they played in, right? So yep. Babe Ruth isn't Babe Ruth if if somehow magically Babe Ruth was born in the 1960s, right? So oh, yeah. and you know, what if we put Nomar Garcia Para at the turn of the century, right? You just, you look at it and you say, these guys were products of their time and, and how they played and how the game had evolved and, you know, so, so on and so forth. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling if you start to kind of play these, play these scenarios in your head. And I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a statistical, you know, analysis person. I'm not someone who, you know, I, I, you know, I, I understand batting average and war and all of those good stats and, you know, but I don't, I don't kind of live and breathe by them. You know, I kind of look at things as more holistic and, you know, look at players as, you know, their whole, their whole careers and their whole beings, you know, versus one stat or another. But the fact is, is that, you know, that becomes the problem when you start comparing stats, right? So if you're comparing dead ball era baseball to, you know, today's baseball, it's, it's very, very different. Well, you were talking about the uh, the Braves. They're the only ball club in Major League history that have moved more than one time. I mean, they went from Boston to Milwaukee and then Milwaukee to Atlanta. Well, the athletics, had... athletics moved twice. Oh, that's right. They did from Kansas. You're right. From Philadelphia to Kansas City and then and then to Oakland. Yeah, the. Um... Yeah, they they moved twice. Yeah, it's great, you know. And I, I there's a there's a joke within my family that you know one of the things that I'm most passionate about is the idea that you know should should teams be able to take their names with them, right? So I always laugh at the idea of you know let's look at the LA Lakers. There are yeah. no lakes in Los Angeles it's because it was <laughs> yeah. Minnesota, which is the land of ten thousand lakes, um, right. or you know the Utah Jazz. Right. That doesn't make as much sense as the New Orleans jazz. Um, yeah. So, you know, the it's really interesting when teams take names with them and you have the evolution of some of these names. And then you also have teams that choose to change their names. Right. So you have the Washington, the first iteration of the Washington Senators, which would become the Minnesota Twins. And the second iteration of the Washington Senators, which would become the Texas Rangers. Right. Right. So, the Minnesota Twins, um, you know, makes all the makes all the sense in the world because it's the Twin Cities. The Texas Rangers, you know, obviously makes sense in Texas. Would you take right. the Texas Rangers and put them in Seattle? It wouldn't. It would not make nearly. It would not make nearly as much sense. But when you do that, all of a sudden, the two when you change a franchise name, it becomes almost two different franchises, where in fact the history the history is the same, right? So you know, the Minnesota Twins fans look back, you know, further than, um, you know, when they moved, um, which I believe was in 1961. But um, yep. my my best friend who's from Minnesota would totally kill me if I didn't know that off the top of my head. But, um, you know, so you look at that and you say, okay, well, you know, do you honor the history before that? Or do you, you know, or do you stick with kind of, you know, and there was definitely a feeling with a lot of these kind of expansion franchises that, you know, you know, nothing existed beforehand. Um, and to, you know, one of the things the, the actual, the owner of the Minnesota Twins said, okay, yeah, you know, this didn't exist before, before the fact, because, you know, they're just like we talk about today, building brands and building identities. Um, so I'm glad that the Red Sox have always been the Red Sox. You know, we obviously had a, at a short period of time where we were the Boston Americans, um, but we haven't been the Boston Americans uh, since, you know, 1911. So, uh, you know, I haven't had, we haven't, we haven't done a name change. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness. Um, so our identify, our identity is very, is very uh, solidified, but you know, the fact is, is that if you take a name with you, um, you know, then your identity, your identity continues. How many people, if the, if the athletics had decided to change their name twice, you know, when they moved from Philadelphia to Kansas city and then changed their name from Kansas city to Oakland, you know, would people even would people even connect the franchises a couple of generations later? Interesting point. I, I like that. I, I love this. Well, listen, I can't tell you. 
I've enjoyed this so much. I love talking not only just to you, but also to you about baseball and, and baseball history. And um, the Red Sox are very lucky in what they've got, I think, as far as you're concerned and uh, a great commodity and you're very hardworking. And uh, you gave me one of the nicest birthdays I've ever had. And uh, I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed our association. Well, can it, you know, it goes, it goes both ways. I, I've, I've, uh, I've, we've had, we've had many a baseball conversation uh, on the air and off the air, um, probably more off the air than anything else. Um, <laughs> but, you know, also having conversations about how the history impacts how we look at the world and how the fact that in 2022, there's still so much that can be learned um, from our history and, and, and going forward and how we can, how we can kind of use the past to, to impact the future. Um, and, you know, how important, how incredibly important that is. Um, you know, talking about the 1940s, I'm not someone who was alive in the 1940s, but having an understanding of what was going on during that time definitely influences how I look at all of Red Sox history, not just that particular time period. Well, I was around, believe it or not, in 1946, but I really didn't have much interest in baseball then um, until I was about eight years old. And speaking of Cleveland, the first World Series game I ever heard was the fourth game of the 54 World Series with Cleveland and the New York Giants. Yeah. And I can remember my dad had the game on on television downstairs. I had it on on the radio in my bedroom. And I kept running down to see if his game was the same as the one I was listening to on the radio. <laughs> So yeah, that, and, that was my first experience with baseball and, and I loved it ever since. You know, baseball is incredible because here we are of two different generations and we can look at it at a particular time period. For me, it's, you know, 97, 98, 99. And for you, it's, you know, the early 50s. And, and, and we can say we fell in love with the game during two completely different times, but for the same reasons. I just want you to know. You talked about the 1999 All-Star Game. I was there. Ah. I was well, there. I was not. Um, I know. I believe, but I like you anyway. <laughs> I believe the, I believe my father had, you know, looked into getting tickets and had decided, had decided against it. Um, but in 99, he probably would have taken my brother instead of me. Um, well, <laughs> my bo I don't know how my boss did it, but he got tickets and we could bring, I don't know, two or three people with us. And I did. And, and we just had a ball. And that's probably the only all-star game I'll ever get to. I listened to plenty of them. Yeah. Even, even when they played in the daytime. And well, he, the coolest oh. thing about 90, the coolest thing about 99 to me is that, um, I got to know when I first started working with the Red Sox, uh, got to know Dick Bershani, um, uh, yes. who was the longtime uh, director of media relations director and he director of PR. Um, and he was obviously a huge part of that 99 all-star game. Um, so even though I started working there in 2010 and worked with and worked with Dick until he passed in 2014, hearing some of the stories from 99, was almost cooler than being there <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I'll I got bet. to hear about, you know, how these things came, how these things came to be um, and see it through the eyes of someone who was incredibly passionate. So maybe, maybe we'll see an all-star game again in Boston before too, too long. I hope so. And uh, again, I can't thank you enough for everything that you have done with us. And I hope the uh, situation continues. Can't wait for March 31st. Yeah, no, baseball, you know, it's, uh, you know, the holiday season comes around, the new year, and then before before you know it, it's pitchers and catchers and spring training, and and, yep. we, and we start it, and we start anew. Well, listen, I hope you have a great Christmas and uh, the start of a great new year, and uh, hopefully we'll talk soon, and uh, we'll see you next year. Sounds great, Ken. Thanks so much. All right, and that'll do it for another and very special edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody. 
Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.